The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning is The Sons of God. The Sons of God, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. As we come back to our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, uh, Paul now has been encouraging us with the blessed status of the one who has been justified in the sight of God through faith alone in Christ alone. It's the theme of his letter at this point, okay, is Paul is encouraging us. Paul wants us to be assured. He wants us to be secure in the thought that God has justified the sinner through faith. And he encourages us with all of those blessings, all of those blessings that have been conferred upon us, uh, those who have been justified in the sight of God through faith alone in Christ alone. In chapter 8, that one, justified through faith, is certainly one who has been set free from the condemning power of God's law. But he is also one set free from the condemning power of his remaining sin. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son, and he condemned sin in the flesh of his own son. There is therefore, Romans chapter 8 verse 1, no condemnation to those who are in union with Jesus Christ through faith. Now Paul then turns from that justification through faith, by faith, and the blessed status of the one who has been justified in the sight of God through faith. And he turns his attention now to the profound way in which all of those blessings and benefits are conferred upon us. Once dead in trespasses and sins, once enslaved to sin and in bondage to death, the spirit of life has now taken up residence within us. And the spirit of life has applied the benefits of Christ's substitutionary work on my behalf, and the spirit of life now has set me free from the principle or the power of sin and death. That's verse 2. In and through my union with Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has set us free from the power of sin and death, made us free. Now, those who are in union with Jesus Christ through faith Those who are in union with him have been brought into union with Jesus Christ. They've been placed into union with Jesus Christ by a work of his spirit. We've been united to Jesus Christ through faith by a work of God's spirit. And those in union with Jesus Christ through faith then experience the blessedness of that spiritual union through the presence of his indwelling spirit given to the believer as a gift of God's grace. These spiritual gifts, these blessings, these benefits aren't merely handed to us like you might hand a gift to a child on Christmas morning, right? Or, you know, they're not just um, given so that we then possess them in and of ourselves. These are gifts that are conferred on the believer through the indwelling presence, through the work, through the operations of God's Holy Spirit who indwells us. They are ours by virtue of the Spirit's work within us. They've been conferred on us by the Spirit. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's none of his. That's verse 9, right? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We've been given tremendous gifts and graces through a work of his spirit by virtue of the finished person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So naturally now, naturally, it has been the presence then of the spirit of God with the believer, and it has been the work of of the Spirit of God within the believer that has been the concern now of the Apostle Paul in our study of chapter 8. The abiding presence of the Spirit of life within the believer is the source of new life to the believer. Think with me. The Spirit of God now indwells you. If you're a Christian, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God has come to take up residence within you. The triune God has made his abode with you through the abiding presence of his Spirit within you. Now at work in you is a new dominating force, you could say. You have a new governing principle that is at work in you. You have a new regulating, governing power that is at work in you. God is at work in you, right? We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why is that? 
Because God is at work in you both to do and to will according to his good pleasure. God is at work in you through his spirit. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the uh, dead dwells in you, and he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There is now, by virtue of God's spirit, a principle of life at work in your formerly dead heart and mind. Do you see? That can't, you can't help but have that produce fruit. <laughs> that is going to produce fruit in the life of one who has put faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Those indwelt by the spirit are those who then set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Those indwelt by the Spirit are then those who walk according to the Spirit. Those who indwelt by the Spirit are those who put to death the deeds of the body. They're active in that work, but that work is evidence of the Spirit's work within them. He, the Spirit of God, is the source of the strength that we need by which we mortify or subdue our remaining sin. That's verse 13. The Spirit is the dominant force at work in the life of the believer. We're now led by the Spirit. That's what that means. All of that, you put that together, the Spirit of God indwelling us, we are now led by the Spirit. A new governing, a new regulating principle or power at work in us. Now, Paul comes to a couple of conclusions with respect to that knowledge, that understanding. The first conclusion that Paul comes to in consideration of that tremendous gift is this. We are debtors then. We're debtors. We've been given this tremendous gift, the gift of the Spirit, and so we are those who are under obligation to walk according to the Spirit. We bear no responsibility to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. All that we've received for the many years of our enslavement to the flesh has been the fruit of death. We don't owe anything to the flesh. However, we are debtors. We are under obligation to live according to the Spirit. We are under obligation to live and to walk in the strength and power of the Spirit. The Spirit has been given to us. Indwelt by the Holy Spirit, strengthened by His might, we have responsibility then to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. And all of that, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, is for the purpose that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who no longer walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How are those righteous requirements going to be fulfilled? They're going to be fulfilled by in the power and in the strength of the Spirit, according to whom we now walk. Now, the second conclusion that Paul comes to in consideration of the Spirit's work within the life of a believer is this, verse 14. Those who walk according to the Spirit of God, they are those who are led by the Spirit of God. They are those who... And those who are led by the Spirit of God, these, Paul says, are the sons of God. Second conclusion of Paul is this. Those led by the Spirit are the sons of God. We're the sons of God. To the everlasting praise of the glory of his grace. Right? That formerly wretched sons of the devil would now become gloriously transformed, gloriously saved sons of God. Verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So those who are indwelt by the Spirit are those who are led by the Spirit. You can't say you have the Spirit and not be led by the Spirit. Those who are indwelt by the Spirit are those who are led by the Spirit. What does that leading look like? We're going to talk about that this morning. Those who are led by the Spirit, those who are led by the Spirit are those who have become or belong to a distinct and glorious assembly. Paul says these are the sons of God. In this respect, the Spirit of God is not only the Spirit of holiness, or the Spirit of, the spirit of wisdom or revelation, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, the Spirit of grace, the Spirit of supplication, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of promise, the Spirit of glory, or the Spirit of life. He is the Spirit of adoption. The spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, verse 15, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, <laughs> heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. I'm really looking forward to unpacking these verses with you in the next few weeks, the next few months. <laughs> um, 
this assertion of Paul, this conclusion of Paul is a, is a profound assertion. It is a weighty assertion, a powerful assertion. These are the sons of God. There's so much theology that is packed into that truth. And I hope to unpack some of it with you here in the weeks to come. Uh, we're going to spend our time together this morning to understand more fully what Paul means by that assertion. These are the sons of God. First, notice with me that those who are the sons of God are marked or characterized by the Spirit's leading. They're marked or characterized by the Spirit's leading. These who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. First, for those concerned with the grammar now, the word for that opens verse 14 is continuative instead of causative. And I'm gonna explain that to all of us in just a moment. It's continuative instead of causative. And so the connection then to verse 13 is this. Verse 13 Those who put to death the deeds of the body will certainly live, that's verse 13, why? Because, or for, those who put to death the deeds of the body are led by the Spirit. And those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God, and the sons of God are guaranteed eternal life. The sons of God are those who live into eternity. They're the ones who inherit the kingdom. They are the sons of God. One fact follows upon another. It's continuative. Heading in the other direction, if you went backwards, right? Those who are the sons of God, those are the, those who are guaranteed eternal life. The sons of God are those who are led by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body, and so they are the ones who live, while those who live according to the flesh will die, verse 13. Right? Now, that continuative progression also helps us understand what Paul means when he describes the sons of God as those who are led by the Spirit. That progression helps us understand what it means to be led by the Spirit. What does Paul mean when he describes them as led by the Spirit? They're led by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. You see the connection? In context, those sons of God are those who are led by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. This sounds like a a simple point. It's an important point. Follow along further up in the context. Those led by the Spirit are those who have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. Verse 9. They set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 5. They walk according to the Spirit, that new governing and regulating principle at work in them. That's verse 4. Fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. Therefore, what do we understand then about the Spirit's leading? What do we understand about the character of the Spirit's leading? The character of the Spirit's leading is moral. Is moral, okay? The leading of the Spirit, even that word, it has to do with the influence of or the direction of the Spirit. To be led is to be influenced. To be led is to be guided in a particular direction. That direction is holiness, when it comes to the Spirit. That direction is righteousness. That direction is in accord with God's law because the Spirit is directing us, guiding us, influencing us in conformity to God's law. And so that leading then, do you see, is patently moral. In our context, the Spirit leads and the sons of God are those who follow. The Spirit leads, we follow. If you're, you're con- constantly feel as though you're acting contrary to the Spirit, well, then you're one of those who are living or walking according to the flesh. And if you live or walk according to the flesh, you will die. The sons of God are those who do not walk in, uh, in contrarian ways to the Spirit. They're not walking against the influence of the Holy Spirit. They're walking by the Spirit, walking in accord with the Spirit. The Spirit leads. The sons of God are those who follow. So what then is the the particular direction in which the Spirit is guiding or influencing, leading the sons of God. He's leading them to put to death the deeds of the body. He's influencing them to walk according to the governing principle or regulating power of the Spirit at work in their lives. He's directing them, verse 4, to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. That's the Spirit's leading, do you see? Now, the leading of the Spirit is moral. He's leading them in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's directing them to walk in holiness. He influences them to walk according to God's law. In other words, 
The leading of the Spirit of God is not superstitious. The leading of the Spirit of God is not superstitious. I was in the store the other day, and I just, I felt like I needed, I, I shouldn't go down aisle six. It's a number of man, right? I should go down aisle seven because seven is a number of perfection, right? So I, I felt like I should go down aisle seven. And you know what? As soon as I turned the corner on aisle seven, there it was. There it was. A BOGO on pumpkin spice graham cracker pie crusts. And you can't get those anywhere. But the Spirit of God led me down aisle seven instead. I'm, I'm, poke, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm poking a little fun, but... Um, I would submit to you that that's how a vast majority of professing Christians think about the Spirit's leading. In that particular way, like the Spirit of God gave me that parking place right in front of the front door when it was raining. Um, That's the way that many, many, I would say a vast majority of professing Christians think today about the Spirit's leading. The Spirit is like your own personal internal GPS. And uh, the Spirit directs you and in that situation, really the only way that the Spirit directs you is by your feelings. I feel led to go this way. I feel an impulse to go that way, to do this, to do that. I prayed about it, and I feel led, as though in response to prayer, the Spirit of God gives you feelings and gives you impulses to do this, that, or the other thing. Brothers and sisters, that is profoundly, profoundly unbiblical. Profoundly unbiblical. Now listen carefully, and we've had opportunity on occasion to talk about this here, but this bears repeating, and I want us to understand this. I really want us to get this. I want you to get this this morning so that we're not governed by some superstition relative to the Spirit's leading, right? We have instruction from God's Word. God's Word tells us exactly how the Spirit leads us, right? We're seeing that in Romans chapter 8. So please listen carefully. Follow along with me. There are primarily three ways that professing Christians tend to think about the leading of the Holy Spirit. Three primary ways. The first, we could call the common or majority view. The majority view. God has a plan for your life. And the Spirit is there to help you discern that plan. And the Spirit is there to guide you or direct you along the path of that particular plan. And the Spirit is there because that particular plan is not written in the Bible. You can't find God's particular, definitive, detailed plan for your life in the Bible. And so you have to figure it out through other means. And God has given his spirit to indwell you to help you figure out what that plan is. And the spirit is there to lead you so that you don't miss out on his perfect plan for you because we can miss out on it if we're not careful to observe all the clues. What if I marry the wrong person? What if I take the wrong job? What if I move to the wrong place? What if I do the wrong thing? Right? And we, we have this anxiety or this fear associated with missing out on God's perfect plan for our lives. Right? What we're talking about is a superstitious means of discovering a plan that God doesn't divulge to us. It's not in the Bible. God doesn't tell us what it is. Right? And so we feel as though we've got to figure out what it is. And God, God understands that you don't know what it is, so God's going to reveal it to you. Uh, and God is going to reveal it to you through your circumstances. God is going to reveal it to you through your feelings. You know it by feeling. I feel led. I feel led. Uh, or he'll reveal it to you through inner promptings, inner voices. If you pray, God is going to reveal this mysterious plan to you. And a lot of times when you act in accord with that mysterious plan, I have a peace about it. Right? I prayed. We acted. I just have a peace. I just have a peace. Can you see why that's called the common or majority view. Because you can name any host of circumstances and apply them through that particular filter, and that's the way that a vast majority of professing Christians think about the Spirit's leading, okay? Most professing Christians think just like that. God has a plan for your life. He doesn't come out and tell you what it is. You've got to go on a spiritual scavenger hunt to figure out what it is, because God has made it mysterious, and you've got to seek and search behind every bush and under every rock to figure it out. And you'll know it when you find it, because the Spirit leads you with feelings and with peace about it. You hear it in Christians all the time. I've prayed about it, and I feel led to do that. You hear that from pastors, right? I I can't tell you how many times I've heard. I've been praying about it, and I feel led to go to this church or to go to that church. 
and happens to be a bigger church with a higher salary. I personally have never, never heard anyone say, I feel led as a pastor to go to that smaller church or that smaller salary. I don't know why that works out the way that it does. God just leading always in one direction, right? Um, but I hear even, even pastors talking like that. With this view, think with me now, with this view, the majority view, you're forced to interpret circumstances. God executes his decreed will through providence. Right? And God doesn't tell us what those, all those decrees are. That's for him to know, and we follow him in faith. So he doesn't always tell us what those decrees are. So we're forced then to interpret circumstances. And we can interpret circumstances entirely wrong and often do. We're forced to discern our own feelings as feelings prompted by the Spirit rather than prompted by our flesh. And how trustworthy, let's be honest with ourselves, how trustworthy do you think you personally are with discerning your own feelings as a feeling prompted by the Spirit versus a feeling prompted by the flesh. We're not going to bat a thousand on that. I can guarantee you. We're going to have difficulty, okay? God is essentially, in that view, God is essentially playing a hide-and-seek game with you. Uh, here's your, God's perfect plan for your life, and you've got to figure out what it is. That's not walking in faith. Right? That's not walking in faith. That's following superstitious, a superstitious doctrine, superstition, right? That's the common or majority view. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Second, there's the charismatic view. The charismatic view. This view is similar to the first in the sense that God has a plan for your life. And it's a plan that you both can and should know. In this view, however, God doesn't play hide and seek with you. He doesn't send you on a scavenger hunt. He tells you what the plan is. He tells you what it is. An apostle or a prophet or some other guy comes to you with a word of knowledge, or he comes to you with a prophecy, you may hear an audible voice telling you, take that job. <laughs> yeah. right? You're gonna hear, you may hear an, an actual audible voice. Somebody's been given dreams or been given visions, and they come to you with dreams or visions. Maybe you have a dream, and you're then trying to interpret your, your dream to figure out what God's plan is. In this view, the Spirit is giving you or giving others actual new revelation from God, directly from God. You should write it down because that should be scripture. God's word is not sufficient in this view. God's word is not complete to us in this view. It's not contained in the scriptures. His word is being given, given outside the Bible every day. And frankly, that renders his word unnecessary unnecessary. If I've got a really important decision to make, and and now I want to tell you too, I've heard of of churches in their elders meetings or in their pastors meetings, making decisions just like this for entire churches where they get together or a person thinks his word is, doesn't address this issue on this decision that we have to make. His word is essentially meaningless. They don't go to his word. And you know what? When you don't go to his word, you really, you're never going to learn his word. You're never going to grow in wisdom. And so we just neglect his word altogether. Why? Because we're going to get a direct word. We're going to get a feeling. We're going to get an impulse. Apostle Bob is going to come with some word of knowledge or some dream. And we don't need his word to make decisions any longer. Do you see? The scripture takes a back seat to our completely subjective experience. He is still today giving other words to all kinds of people who are not responsible for writing scripture. When all of those experiences were given to people in the Bible because they were writing scripture. And that act of revelation must be confirmed by God and it's confirmed through signs and wonders. What are the signs? They're signs. What are they pointing to? They're pointing to the fact that this is God's word. This is an apostolic a writer of scripture, this is a prophet, and this is God's revealed word, and he attests to the veracity of his word through signs and wonders. Doesn't happen any longer today. God has given no new revelation since the canon has been closed, and now he's not giving new revelation. The canon is closed. That's why you don't, that's why um, those words of the prophets are like 95% don't come true. <laughs> Okay, first, 
the majority view. Second, the charismatic view. Third, the biblical view, the biblical view. God has a plan for your life. Psalm 139, verse 16. In your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Does God decree your days? Yes, he does. The hairs on your head are numbered. God knows everything about you. Everything that's gonna happen. God has a plan for your life. And although God has decreed your days as he has decreed all things whatsoever that come to pass, he doesn't tell you what those days involve. (laughs) He doesn't decree or doesn't explain his decrees to you. He doesn't expect you to go on a scavenger hunt to figure out what they are. He doesn't expect you to play this game of hide and seek to figure out what they are. He expects you to follow him in faith, trusting he knows that plan and he holds your life in his hands. That's what faith is, brothers and sisters. We live and we live in accord with his revealed word to us. And as we apply his word to our circumstances, to our, the issues that we face or the decisions we have to make, as we apply his word, we apply his word, depending on God in prayer for wisdom, we apply his word, we obey his word, and we trust him in faith. That's living in faith. He gives us his sufficient and faithful word. His word is sufficient to face any circumstance. that we, I've not encountered a circumstance yet where principles from God's word don't apply to that particular circumstance in a way that I can obey the Lord and honor the Lord in him, following him in that particular circumstance and making my decision. He expects us with that sufficient word given to us, he expects us to apply his word and to obey his word. And he calls us to trust him, to follow him in faith, knowing that he is the one who is directing our steps. Guidance then, direction, or leading by the spirit takes place then when the word of God is applied by the spirit of God in wisdom. As we face issues, as we face circumstances or decisions in life, the spirit leads us to obey his word while we trust God in faith, and his word is sufficient to all the circumstances that we face. That makes sense. That's the biblical view. Now, let me give you an example. I wonder, you know, if I should take that job out of town. I wonder if I should take that job. The common view or the majority view. I prayed about it. I prayed about it. They offered me more money. They offered me the job right when I needed it. This must be God's will. I feel led to take that job out of town. I have a peace about it. The charismatic view. The Apostle Bob said I should take that job. (laughs) I had a dream just the other night about working in that particular town. And then God said, take the job. Okay, right? The biblical view. I can't be certain that this move would be for my spiritual good because there's not a good church in that town. And God's word specifically says to me, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you, right? Why are you worried about such things? Consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. And look how finely arrayed they are. Do you not think that your heavenly father will care for you and provide for you? Why are you worried? Seek first the kingdom of God. That's the principle that we apply, correct? And all these things, God, God knows what you need before you ask him. Don't worry about tomorrow. Seek first the kingdom and he will provide for you. That's a promise from God in his word. Do you believe his promises? Then obey, act in faith and obey. Do you believe, do you believe that God is willing and God is able to provide for you if you apply that biblical principle in faith and obey him and don't take the job because there's no good church up there? Right? Can you do that in faith? Absolutely you can because God is faithful to his word. He will not forsake his word to you. It's a matter of faith. And can you see how that particular circumstance bolsters our faith and grows our faith and matures our faith, teaches us to depend upon him? And there are many people in this church, many people, who can attest to God's faithfulness in that particular situation and in many others just like it. 
that the Lord is faithful to care for his own when we biblically apply God's word in wisdom and we trust him in faith to take care of us, to direct our steps. That's the biblical view, brothers and sisters. I pray, commit that to your heart and mind. The difficulty, the difficulty comes when those biblical principles stand between me and what I want. I want to go to that town. <laughs> I want to take that job with a higher salary and the, the letters after my name. and the, you know, <laughs> That's what I want. So when those biblicals come in conflict, when those biblical principles come into conflict with our own will or our own desires, then there's trouble. And I would submit to you, obey God. The sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God leads the sons of God according to the Word of God applied in the life of the believer. We are to obey the Word of God in faith, trusting the Lord to direct our steps. Can you see then how the leading of the Spirit is moral? He's not going to lead us in ways that are contrary to the Bible, contrary to God's word. He's going to lead us in accord with God's word. The spirit testifies of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. It's a matter of faith. As the Christian grows in their knowledge of God's word, as the spirit gives them understanding, wisdom in applying God's word, and the Christian, as they grow and as they apply the word, is expected to obey. They're expected to walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh, They're expected to put to death the deeds of the body, mortifying the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. And as the believer faces circumstances, as they face issues or decisions in their life, the the believer who is applying God's word by the Spirit can be confident, complete confidence, complete confidence that they're being led by the Spirit. It's not a matter of superstition. It's not a matter of your feelings one way or another, like shifting sand, that stuff. You can be, the the believer can be confident that they are being led by the Spirit. I've said this before in many cases. When you apply the means that God has appointed, God's word, you're seeking wisdom. Maybe you don't understand scripture and how scripture applies. And so you go to get counsel because God says that there is safety in a multitude of counselors. So you do what God's word says. And when you do what God's word says, you're getting wisdom from God's word. And then you apply godly biblical wisdom to your circumstance, to your decision. And then you obey what God's word says in faith, trusting God. You can't make a wrong decision. I'm sorry. You, it's a matter of faith. God has said, God has given us instruction from his word exactly how we are to make decisions like that. So when you trust the Lord that way and you're doing all that you can, as much as depends upon you, to apply biblical wisdom to your circumstance without letting your own selfish desires get in the way, you're not compromising, then you can have every confidence. You can have the complete expectation in faith that the spirit of God is leading you. The spirit of God is leading you. And that is comforting comforting when you have to make some really tough, really difficult decisions. Very comforting. As the believer faces those decisions, they can be confident. When they understand how the word of God may be applied in their circumstances, when they seek the means of God to gain understanding, and they obey in faith what God's word says, then they can be confident. In those circumstances, brothers and sisters, when there are, there are multiple decisions that you could make, that are all in accord with God's word, we have complete liberty. We have complete liberty. There are two uh, decisions I need to make, and I have two options, both of which are um, biblical, sound biblical options that I could take. I tend to look at the one that requires the most faith. (laughs) Uh, Put that in God's hands and not in my own hands. I'd rather make that decision. Uh, But both, you have liberty. The Lord gives us liberty, and we can exercise that liberty again in faith, trusting the Lord. The trouble happens when our will comes in conflict, into conflict with his will. And unless you know better, unless you know better, it's really hard to argue with, I've prayed about it, and I feel led. 
Well, now, now you know how to do that, right? So you can talk about the biblical view. Okay. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Then the sons of God are marked or characterized by the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the leading of the Holy Spirit is not superstitious. He is leading us in accord with God's revealed word. That leading is accord with God's word. That leading is characterized by God's wisdom. The sons of God then are led in paths of righteousness for his namesake. They're led in holiness. They're led in obedience. They're led to set their minds on the things of the spirit. They're led to walk according to the spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body, walking according to that governing, regulating principle or power of the spirit who is at work in them because he indwells them. It's a leading by the spirit that produces within the believer a corresponding effort toward mortification of sin. It's a leading that will produce that warfare, right? It's a, if you're led by the Spirit, then you're going to be led to put to death the deeds of the body. It's a leading by the Spirit that produces within the believer a corresponding hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's a leading by the Spirit that produces within the, the heart and mind and life of the believer a hatred a moral detest, contempt for their own sin. It's a leading by the Spirit that produces within us a corresponding pursuit of holiness, a fulfillment of the righteous requirements of God's law. That leading is not circumstantial. It doesn't pop up here and there. That leading is constant, constant in the Christian's life. It is a moral governing or regulating principle or power. The sons of God who are those who are led in this way by the Spirit of God, and the leading of the Spirit is profoundly moral. That's the first point. <laughs> Notice, those who are the sons of God are marked or characterized by the Spirit's leading. The Spirit's leading, brothers and sisters, is a characterizing or identifying mark of sonship. Of sonship. Now, second, consider the nature of that sonship. Consider the nature of their sonship. If those led by the Spirit are the sons of God, then what then is the nature of that sonship? And we're going to spend this week and next week talking about that. Paul has asserted those who are led by the Spirit belong to a distinct and glorious assembly. These, Paul says in verse 14, are the sons of God. Now notice, concerning the nature of their status as the sons of God, the Lord has taken them into this distinct and glorious assembly by adoption. Concerning the nature of their sonship, they are sons by adoption. We're not sons of God by nature, born into that heritage through natural generation. Rather, we are sons of God by adoption, born into that glorious congregation, not through natural generation, but by supernatural regeneration. Born again as sons of God by a work of his spirit. Verse 15. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but rather you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, in the parallelism of the text, verse 15, both the spirit of bondage and the spirit of adoption, they're both referring to the spirit of God. I want to explain what that means. In other words, verse 15, you are no longer a slave, but a son. Paul makes that point in Galatians chapter 4. You're no longer a slave, you're a son. You did not receive the spirit of God. You did not receive the spirit of God as a spirit of slavery again to fear. How did you receive the spirit of God when he was given to you as a gift? You re received him as the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So sometimes you can see spirit with a little less, and that means a disposition, a disposition of heart, a disposition of mind. Um, it's a, speaking of a, a person's spirit, okay? A little less. Or the spirit can be, referred to, can be referring to the spirit of God. In verse 15, both instances of the use of that word refer to the Holy Spirit. And what, is Paul, what Paul is saying is this, you did not receive the spirit of God as a spirit of bondage, as a spirit, again, of bondage to fear, you receive the spirit of God as the spirit of adoption, okay? By whom we are given the privilege, the blessing of calling upon God as our heavenly father. Turn with me to Galatians chapter four. Let's look at that text together. Galatians chapter four, 
we received the Spirit of God as the Spirit of adoption. And it's by the Spirit of adoption, in the power of the Spirit, because of the Spirit, by virtue of the Spirit, it's by whom, Him, we are given the privilege and blessing of calling upon God as our Heavenly Father. Galatians chapter 4, look at verse 1. Now I say that the heir, the one who will inherit from the Father, the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. But that heir is under guardians and under stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But, verse 4, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. When the fullness of time has come refers to Christ's incarnation. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son into the world, born of a woman, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. The son of God was sent into the world so that we might receive the same status as he has. Think about that for a minute. (laughs) The same status as he has, so that we would become sons of God. Jesus Christ came so that those who he came to redeem would be sons of God, to experience or to inherit in the same way that he will, to have the same status that he has. Verse six, and because you are sons... God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So think with me. Notice he doesn't say sons and daughters. There's a reason for that. Because you are sons, it's the son that inherits, the firstborn son in particular. The firstborn son inherits. So brothers and sisters, we all enjoy the status as sons because we all will inherit with Jesus Christ as sons. Does that make sense? doesn't say sons and daughters. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son, whereby his son, says Abba Father, <laughs> he sent forth the spirit of his sons into your hearts. Why? Because your sons, so that by his spirit, you may cry out, Abba Father. So that by his spirit, you can say, God is my father, just like Jesus Christ says, God is my father. Why does Jesus Christ, in John, when the ladies come to meet him on the road, after his resurrection, he's been raised from the dead, and he tells the ladies, go and tell the disciples, behold, I go to my father and your father. He's making that point because God is our father too, through the person and work of the son, who came to give us the adoption as sons. Among the glorious blessings associated with our status as sons is that God has given the spirit of his son so that we can address God as our father in the same way that Jesus Christ addresses God as his father. Therefore, verse seven, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then you are an heir of God through Christ, through your union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Despite what this world likes to think, We are not born into this world as children of God. We aren't naturally the children of God. Jesus said to Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verse 5, listen, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he's not a child of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is flesh is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. We're not talking about natural regeneration. We're talking about supernatural regeneration, right? Those born of the spirit. Paul describes all men and women elsewhere, not as the natural born children of God, but rather as the natural-born children of wrath. The Apostle John speaks of children of God and children of the devil. These are sons of disobedience, sons of perdition, in contrast 
with the sons of God. Now, there is a sense in which all people, all people could be considered the offspring of God. Um, it's in the same sense that we are all created in the image of God. It's in the sense that we all partake of the goodness of his common grace. It reigns on the just and on the unjust. Paul makes reference to this common grace in Acts 17. When he's preaching on Mars Hill and he's preaching to the pagans, uh, Paul says in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being as also some of your own prophets, own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. That's a word there, genos, that's uh, it's not the word used for children or the word used for son, but it's a word that has its root in the word for the nations or for Gentiles. We're all his genos. We're all his offspring in that sense. Therefore, Paul says, since we are the, the genos or the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. There is a sense in which made in the image of God, we're all the offspring of God. But any good, any good afforded mankind in general, any good afforded mankind in that universal sense may only be attributable to common grace. And there will come a time when common grace comes to an end for them. Any good afforded, the the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. It's the goodness of God. Paul says in Acts 14, to the pagans, God has given us food and gladness of heart not left himself without a witness in that God did good, did good to all mankind universally in that. That common grace will come to an end. That's not the sonship. That's not the sonship that Paul's referring to in Romans chapter eight. We are not all children of God in that sense. The blessings and benefits afforded those who are the sons of God in Romans chapter eight are the blessings and benefits associated with God's special grace afforded or by virtue of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Only available to those who are justified through faith, placed in union with Jesus Christ through faith, indwelt by his spirit, the spirit of adoption. Our confession describes our adoption in this way. Listen to this from chapter 12. All those that are justified, God vouchsafed in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make us partakers of the grace of adoption. So all those who are justified, God vouchsafed. It means that God granted or gave a privilege. It's uh, a reference to favor that is given through condescension. God condescended to show favor to those who are justified through faith in his son. He vouchsafed for them. Uh, Here, for the sake of his beloved son, God gave the privilege or the right to be partakers of the grace of adoption. That's what John means in John chapter one, where John says to them, it was given the right to become children of God. God vouchsafes for those who are justified through faith alone in Christ alone. He gives them the right to become children of God. Now, confession continues. It is by that grace that they are taken into the number, the number of that glorious assembly, and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. They have his name put upon them. They receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, and are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a loving father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and sealed by the spirit, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting life all because of the adoption as sons. The spirit, spirit of adoption, our guarantee. That blessed status is conferred on the one who has been united to Jesus Christ through faith. It is the fruit of divine adoption. And that, brothers and sisters, is a beautiful picture of the grace of God that has been poured out on us in the gospel. Uh, Adoption, the way that this world often speaks about adoption is uh, often deplorable, often wicked, and often contrary to, to what is meant by adoption in and through the gospel. Uh, They joke about adoption or uh, you better be careful you're not adopted, right? (laughs) But in reality, according to the Bible and the adoption that we have as sons of God, it is a beautiful picture. Um, Those uh, parents who have adopted children before will will tell you, um, I love them like my own. 
And they, according to our confession, they have access to their mother and father. They enjoy all of the liberties, all of the privileges of the children of that family. They are pitied, they're protected, they're provided for, they're chastened when they mess up, yet never cast off. Um, this picture is a beautiful picture of the love of God toward us. First John chapter 3, verse 1, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Certainly not second-class citizens in the kingdom, <laughs> sons of God. Now, incidentally, John continues in verse 10, listen, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. In other words, he's not led by the Spirit of God. Therefore, he is not a son of God. Do you see that? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. He's not led by the Spirit of God. He's not walking according to the Spirit. Nor is he who does not love his brother. Because that one is not led by the Spirit. That's not walking according to the Spirit. That's not one who is led by the Spirit. That's not one who is a son of God. John draws our attention to two distinct groups. You are a child of God or you are a child of the devil. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are made manifest. They're evident. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. The Bible describes your natural condition as being a child of the devil. Your default position. You were born into this world as a child of the devil, a child of wrath, as being among the household of the damned. Paul says that we are all sons of disobedience before we're born again into the family of God, driven out of the garden, cut off from return, as it were, by a flaming sword. We walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We were or are by nature children of wrath, children of wrath, just as the others. As Owen says, we are of that family whose inheritance is wrath. We, as sons of God, have an inheritance in heaven, it's an inheritance that we will receive as those united to the Son, as those united to Jesus Christ in faith, or you are of that household, you are of that family who is damned, and your inheritance in eternity, poured out full measure, your inheritance is wrath, curse, death, and hell, under the power of darkness, and under the authority, you could say, of uh, your father, the devil, a family of sin, a family of Satan. You have no right, no title to any other family, least of all, any right to be called children of God. And to that heavenly family, we are born into this world as aliens, strangers, and enemies. You see, it's imperative for every son of Adam to turn from their sin and to put faith and trust in Jesus Christ or your eternal inheritance will be wrath and hell where we're given the right, as the Lord says, John chapter one, to become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ whereby we inherit all things in him. That's a no-brainer. <laughs> turn to Jesus Christ in faith. J.I. Packer said this, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. We need to meditate on this, meditate on these things as we hear about them in the weeks to come. Adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby for the sake of Christ, he formerly, formally translates the regenerate from the family of Satan into his own family and legally confirms them in all of the rights, immunities, and privileges of his children. When we were thinking about this subject before, I remembered the um, example of the Gibeonites. If you remember the example of the Gibeonites from Joshua chapter 9, uh, Israel, under the leadership of Joshua, went into Jericho and absolutely wiped out the city of Jericho. Walls came tumbling down. Uh, Joshua, the Israelites, then went to Ai. And uh, after some difficulty there the first time, came back and absolutely destroyed uh, Ai, putting every one of them to the sword. God uh, had given them a tremendous victory. There had been a, a great slaughter, utterly destroying 
everyone, everything in the city, and all done by the power of God. Uh, that is a picture of God pouring out his wrath upon the wicked. It's an act of judgment. The Gibeonites see this from afar off. Maybe you're like a Gibeonite here this morning, <laughs> and you're looking uh, at these things as an, obje- an objective bystander, as it were. You've not put faith in Jesus Christ. You're considering what the Bible has to say. You're considering what God's word has to say to you. And so like a Gibeonite, you sit back and you hear about that judgment. You hear about your own sin. You hear about the wrath of God being poured out on those who are of their father, the devil. And maybe like a Gibeonite, if you have any sense in your head at all, you're terrified. If you have any sense, if you have a a rational thought in your head, it should be the fear of God. And like the Gibeonites, you're terrified. They know what became of Jericho. They saw what happened to Ai, and they knew what would happen to them. And so out of fear, the Bible says that the Gibeonites worked craftily. (laughs) They thought that by their deceit, they would be safe. They pretended. They took old sacks on their donkeys, old clothes on their backs, old sandals on their feet, old and crusty, dry, moldy bread in their satchels. They went to Joshua in fear and made a covenant with them. Look, we've come from a far land. We've been on a long journey. Knowing, knowing that when they were found out, they would be slaves to Israel forever, but at least the Gibeonites would, would escape with their lives. They could have turned in repentance to the one true and living God of Israel. I don't think that uh, thought occurred to them. <laughs> they feigned it. And you can sit in a church and feign Christianity and talk the talk and appear to walk the walk. But the Gibeonites in the end became woodcutters and water carriers for God's covenant people. They were cursed to a lifetime of slavery. Not so for sons of the kingdom. (laughs) To be so close and yet to be so far. Do you see? Not so for the sons of the kingdom. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Those in the who are children in the house of their father, they're not slaves, they're children. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. They have title, those children, they have title to all the rights and privileges and blessings of the family into which they have been conveyed. That is a wondrous blessing of adoption, amen? So don't be like the Gibeonites. (laughs) Don't be like the Gibeonites. Turn to Jesus Christ in faith and become a son in the kingdom, amen? The Lord... Uh, confers that wondrous blessing upon those who put their faith in his son. Uh, Those that do not will inherit wrath. God is gracious, isn't he? He is not only able, he is willing. And he tells you today, come, turn to Jesus Christ in faith and live. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. And we marvel and are just in awe of this wondrous blessing that you pour out on sinners uh, such as we are. And you justify us uh, by faith in your son. You impute us or credit us with his righteousness. You take all of our sin and you impute it, credit it to him. He bears our shame, bears the penalty that we rightly deserve in himself on the tree. All our sins are paid for. We're forgiven, justified in the sight of God, reconciled to you. We now have peace with you. And we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we now have the tremendous blessing of calling upon you as our Father. What an amazing gift. And all of that, uh, in light of the soon approaching day, where we will, in union with him, inherit all things as sons. What a tremendous blessing. What an indescribable gift. You, Lord, not only are gracious to sinners, you lavish, lavish grace upon us. Um, So, Lord, it is our joy uh, to trust you in faith. It's our joy to submit ourselves to our Heavenly Father who cares for us, to our Lord Jesus Christ who has given himself for us, to the leading of the Spirit who indwells us, Lord, because your ways are good, right, and true. And we're grateful, Lord, to be converted 
that we might worship you in eternity. And may it be to your everlasting praise. Thank you for our time and consideration of this text. Help us, Lord, as we further consider these things in the matter of adoption. Help us to meditate on these things and commit them to our hearts and minds so that we might live for you to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.